Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Can you bank on biometrics, voice recognition, sending a selfie and touch ID? Can they really protect the wealthy from cybercrime? It's good money week, but can investors with a conscience really outperform those of us with fewer such scruples? And we gaze into the black mirror. Does the TV hit offer us a glimpse of a dystopian financial future? Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you all this week's money news in downloadable form. Firstly, can you remember all the passwords needed to access your financial information online? Hmm, I thought not. More and more high street banks think the answer could lie in biometrics, which, with the tap of a fingerprint or even the sound of our voice, are able to give us access to our accounts. Tempted? I'm joined in the FT studio by Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor, who has been getting to grips with the latest changes in technology. Martin, welcome to The Money Show. Thanks, Claire, for having me. So, everyone gets frustrated when they forget their passwords. Biometrics therefore sound very appealing, but I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast is thinking, is it safe? Well, it's a very good question. And I think that the answer is, as usual, is complicated. (laughs) But I don't think it is as safe as people perhaps assume. Okay. Now, let me start by telling you that what got me interested in this question was a demonstration by a cyber security consultancy, one of whose uh, executives and technical experts, who, by the way, used to work for GCHQ, the uh, government intelligence pretty respectable source. Yeah, came in and gave us a demonstration of how you could create fake fingerprints, uh, you could use voice recordings, and even a uh, builder, a face mask of somebody, and use those methods to hack into a smartphone's uh, fingerprint reader, its voice recognition systems, and its face recognition. It's all very Sherlock Holmes. Yes, it's very Sherlock Holmes. Now, that got me thinking, well, you know, this is not as safe as people assume it is going to be. And then I got talking to a lot of cybersecurity experts, a lot of fintech companies that Mm. are working on these biometric systems and started to ask questions about this. And what I've found is that actually... In the end, I think the way that these biometric identity systems are heading, they probably will end up safer than the traditional uh, username and passwords that we all have to 
remember and and the the annoying memorable uh, words card card readers that we, 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 we clumsily fumble around with the chip and pin which aren't actually that safe because there is a, an awful lot of fraud that goes on with these accounts being hacked into and it's very expensive for the the banking industry and they spend an awful lot of money fighting it. So I think if we can crack this, it's essential. But as banks are introducing things like voice recognition technology where you can call up your bank and just by talking to them, they can recognise that it is you based on a whole different number of factors like how you pronounce words, the, the size of your larynx even can be measured by new technology systems. So that is very clever. Equally, almost all the banks now allow us to access our basic bank account details just by using the fingerprint reader on your smartphone. So it's already there. It's um... already there. And at the moment, as we were shown by this cybersecurity expert who came in and we did a video of this which we're going to publish later this week of his demonstration you can hack into these things so I think for wealthy people or for people who have access to high value corporate accounts it would be worth taking the admittedly high level of effort to do a customized targeted hack on that person by stealing their fingerprint or recording their voice surreptitiously or even producing a fake well, of course, because it's quite difficult for a criminal to do that kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas at the moment, if you wanted to do a big data sweep and, you know, like the some of the security compromises that we've had at big retailers recently where people's bank details or credit card numbers may have been obtained, they get, you know, millions and millions of numbers. This isn't the same kind of code that the criminals are trying to crack. This is very specified biometric information that they can take from you once. Yeah, there's a couple of points I want to make about that. One is, you're absolutely right, I mean, most of the fingerprint reader, that information is stored on your phone. It's not stored centrally with your bank. So there shouldn't be a risk of a massive store of everyone's fingerprints being able to be hacked into and then used by cyber criminals to then raid all our bank accounts because that information is all based on your phone, the fingerprint information stored on your phone. But what the cybersecurity experts say to me is actually... That isn't as great as it sounds because you really only need your username and password in order to set up a mobile bank account, the mobile banking app. So any hacker can get a new phone. As long as they've got your username and password, they can set up an app on that phone and they can pretend that they're you. So the fingerprint there is really not... Nothing is 100% nothing, It's not proof. adding any extra layer of security. It's adding convenience, but it's not really adding any extra layer of security. Now, the voice recognition, in theory, is adding an extra layer of security because that's something that's when you call into the call centre of your bank, you are having to you know, get past that check of checking your the size of your larynx and the way that <laughs> the you pronounce bottles. certain words <laughs> and, and the speed with which you talk and your, your accent, etc. Giving my money. All of that is unique to you, so should be much harder to hack in to, but it's not completely infallible. So I think that's definitely true. The risk is that there will be some kind of big store of biometric data in a bank or elsewhere, which could be hacked into and then used to go after an awful lot of people's money in their bank accounts. And, and so, the, the, the brilliant point that you make in mm. your piece is like, if somebody steals your password, you can change it. 
if somebody steals your fingerprints, what do you do then? <laughs> well, <laughs> Grow exactly. another finger. <laughs> exactly. It is a problem. And especially as these biometric identity systems become more and more commonplace mm-hmm. and more and more widespread, if your fingerprint was stolen, and there was a famous case in the US, uh, the Office of Personnel Management, which manages all the federal civil servants in the US, they had 5.3 million fingerprints stolen a couple of years ago. So that was very damaging. And you could see then the potential if there was some kind of store of fingerprints like that where they're all stolen those whoever gets hold of that data could then use that information to create false fingerprints just as i did on this demonstration yes to hack into this cyber expert's phone and they could set up bank accounts and conceivably get into people's bank accounts and move money around so um, just with that so finally to wrap things up yeah what are the banks doing to make sure that doesn't happen it's basically cross-checking you think is the answer to get to that really really safe place that's better than passwords well i think there's two things i think one is for now i think the best is to have multi-touch checking of identity so whether that be voice plus fingerprint or even go back to a you know a password plus voice or a text message as well as voice so you get a text message on your phone as well as doing voice recognition just some extra kind of level of security particularly for what they call high risk operations so say if you're paying somebody a large amount of money for the first time that you've never paid before or high very high value transactions particularly corporate accounts but i think where we're going to end up if i can just give you a vision of where we're going to end up it's going to be what they call behavioral biometrics and there are banks who are already toying around with this and testing this and that is not just your fingerprint or your voice or your face it is hundreds of data points that can be checked by very clever software such as where you're calling from what you're doing how fast you move your finger on your phone Mm. how fast you type what type of activities you do what time of day what location your phone is in using the gps what kind of phone you're using so all of these different data points put together create a profile of you so the software learns about you and what you typically do and normally do and then it can spot when anything is kind of out of the ordinary and if enough of those data points are are not correct so it's not if one of those is out of place then it won't allow you to access your bank details but it's very cleverly learns about you and this behavioral biometrics can't be mimicked it's not something that's transferable because each one learns how you use that particular app. Very clever stuff. And I think from the consumer's point of view, that's extremely seamless because you don't even have to use your fingerprint scan or use your voice to get in. It it automatically logs you in because it knows how you hold your phone, for instance, what angle, how quickly you type. It just learns who you are from that point. But nobody else will be able to replicate that very easily. Well, you and I might think we know about money, but in the future, (laughs) our money will know more about us. Well, thanks very much there to Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. You can read his feature, Should You Bank on Biometrics, in FT Money on Saturday as part of the FT Weekend newspaper, or online at ft.com slash money, where you can also watch the video. Still to come on The Money Show, mirror, black mirror, on the wall. But before that, let's turn to another fairy tale of finance. As investors, we all dream of a happy ending, usually in the form of healthy returns and a well-financed retirement. But the organisers of Good Money Week want us to think about the darker side of corporate life that our money could ultimately be funding, such as high levels of executive pay to financing companies that invest in weapons, tobacco or even environmentally harmful activities. Here to tell us more about Good Money Week is Simon Howard, Chief Executive of the UK Sustainable Finance and Investment Association, who joins me now in the FT studio. Welcome, Simon. Good morning. 
So Good Money Week, the slogan is make money and make a difference. Is it really possible for investors to do both? Yes, it's possible across the full range of your personal finances, across your banking, across your ISA, and increasingly across your corporate pension. The providers of all of these services are increasingly receptive to knowing what you want your money to do. Uh, It may be very simple. You may want to avoid certain sectors, or you may want to put your providers under more pressure. You may say to them, I want to make a positive difference to the world, so please go out and look for the new technologies, clean energy, infrastructure, things like that, which will make the world a better place for us and for our children. And if I can pick you up on your introduction, the returns are fine. Obviously, what we're interested in is the returns going forward, but the historic returns are fine. And when things like climate change begin to bite, that will attack corporate values. I think if you look at what Theresa May is saying, she's going to look at aggressive tax strategies. So companies which are, you know, boosting their earnings by not paying enough tax, they're going to come under pressure. So their earnings will fall and the rating they're placed on will fall. So, you know, the returns going forward, I think, will benefit those who are adopting positive investment approaches. So your argument is that all investors should be using their money for good. But we found in our experience that it's the millennials who are really interested and the most engaged in ethical investing. Yes, we yes we do polling each year. And the idea that the millennials, those less than about 35, are really interested in these issues is confirmed very much by our polling. So, for instance, more than half of them are interested in fossil fuel free options for their pension uh, and that compares with a much lower percentage for those aged more and this of course is a great opportunity for UXIF members and for financial services generally provide the product which the millennials want to buy you'll be aware we're going through auto enrollment you know more and more people are being put into defined contribution pension schemes well these people tend to be younger they've missed out on defined benefit they're going into DC The way to trap them and to increase the amount they're willing to save is surely to offer them a product which interests them. So fossil free is on the agenda. Investment processes which reflect stakeholder rights, which realise that resources are non-renewable and reflect this in investment approaches. This is the product which we think people can buy with considerable assurance that they will not be sacrificing return. Now, FT Money published some research from Morningstar this week showing that many funds marketed as being socially responsible scored low on ethics when compared to conventional funds. Taking that as an example, should investors really place their trust in industry rankings? I think the investor needs to look carefully at the ranking. There are no really fundamentally agreed definitions that just some of the terms you and I have been using, ethics, sustainability, responsible... You know, the individual saver must work out what she wants to do with her money and she must then look closely at what's on offer. The ratings are, I think, a useful guide to the issues which need to be Mm. considered, but there's no magic bullet. Perhaps regrettably, what our polling shows is people will save more in this way if there were kite marks and labels available. More than half of people would save more. So I think it does lie with the industry to evolve and get the understanding of these ratings better understood out there. Well, thanks very much. That was Simon Howard, Chief Executive of the UK Sustainable Finance and Investment Association. You can read more about this topic now on ft.com slash money. From good money 
to bad. If you're one of the millions of viewers glued to the Netflix hit show Black Mirror, you'll know that the first episode, Nosedive, is all about user ratings, just like the ones people give each other in gig economy platforms like Uber and Airbnb, where you have to build up a good ranking from other users in order to get more business. But in Charlie Brooker's dystopian world, people rate each other every time they interact at work, in their social lives, online, or even just in the street. And those ratings have real-world repercussions. Judith Evans, the FT's property correspondent and budding TV critic, joins me now in the FT studio. Welcome. Hi. So, Judith, why is this sci-fi vision of the world relevant to our own lives and finances, which has prompted you to write about it in FT Money this week? Well, I'm very happy to come in with my own futuristic thoughts here to follow on from Martin's. So in the TV show, don't worry, I won't give away the ending, but um, what happens in this Netflix episode is that people rate each other all the time and that these ratings can determine your access to all sorts of real-world things, bank accounts, accommodation, rental cars, things like that. So if other people essentially decide that you're not the cool kid in the class, you could suddenly find life very difficult. It's a lot of fun and I'd really recommend watching it. Obviously, it doesn't reflect the world we live in, but in some ways it does. Obviously, Airbnb and Uber already operate like this with peer ratings. And financial services companies like insurers and credit rating agencies are looking at ways to harness social data to tell them more about people and decide what insurance premium they should pay or what loan they perhaps should be allowed to borrow. So it's actually not a million miles away from the world we live in. Is this such a bad thing? I mean, you could make the argument that somebody who's dealt with me in real life, or many of those people, are more likely to reach an accurate view than some credit rating agency that's just trying to piece together financial records about me. Well, absolutely. And I don't think we should underestimate the power of these kind of peer networks to give us useful information. I avoided buying an exploding saucepan just the other day because the reviews on Amazon told me not to go there. (laughs) However, there are a lot of risks, and I think you can tell this from the way that some people get treated online. There's a fantastic book by John Ronson called So You've Been Publicly Shamed about some of the worst cases of people being attacked on the internet. And in real life, there have also been uh, lawsuits against companies such as Uber and Airbnb by people who say they were unfairly kicked off the platforms because of reviews that didn't really reflect reality or didn't reflect the majority view of that person's service. Now, I don't have a view on the merit of those specific lawsuits, but they do bring up the possibility of too much weight being attached to reviews that may not be accurate or that might be based on some kind of personal grudge. Now, in the TV show, these ratings are used to determine access to important real-world services like accommodation and flights. Are there any real-world parallels with that, or could there be? Well, there's a fascinating experiment going on in China, which is trying to pioneer exactly such a system. The government wants to have a single rating for people's trustworthiness, which is based on everything from whether you take care of your elderly parents to what you say online to whether you've defaulted on a loan. And they want this rating then to be used to determine your access to services. There are political problems with that, though, even in an authoritarian country like China. But as we've mentioned, there are services available in other parts of the world that also depend on systems like this. And there are some interesting academic studies emerging into how people behave, effects like herding around an existing rating or the fear of revenge ratings, which is certainly something that I experience each time I use an Airbnb or an Uber. 
as I've said in my piece for money this week, I put on this ridiculously nice persona, which doesn't really reflect myself in reality at all. We've also heard today that Admiral, the insurer, is looking at using Facebook data to decide what insurance premiums people should have to pay for their cars. It looks like there may be some hitches with that scheme, but that's just one example of how interested financial companies are in this area. Well, five stars, I think, should be awarded to Judith Evans, property correspondent at the FT. You can read her comment piece online now at ft.com slash money. We'd love to hear your views on the online banking security system, ethical investing and money matters more generally. You can email us at money at ft.com, tweet us at ftmoney or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. The Money Show will be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT's Banking Weekly. It's presented by me, Patrick Jenkins, the financial editor at the FT, and I'm joined by a team and an external guest every week. You can find this every Tuesday at ft.com slash podcasts. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.